Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Alia Rao, author of Crunch Time, How Married Couples Confront Unemployment, published in 2020 by University of California Press. Dr. Rao is currently an assistant professor of sociology at the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. She completed her PhD in sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and a postdoctoral fellowship in Stan- at Stanford University, University in 2018. Her research interests are in the study of work and organizations, economic sociology, family, gender, and emotions. Dr. Rao, welcome to the show. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So could you, let's begin the interview by you just saying a few words about yourself. I know I just briefly introduced you, um, but what what other information would you like the audience to know? Sure. So I am, the other thing is, you know, besides my areas of research, um, my (laughs) methods, I'm primarily um, a qualitative researcher. So I use a lot of in-depth interviews um, and participant observation methods in my research, um, and I think that would be it. I don't know that mm-hmm. I would add more. Yeah. And I, I noticed that um, you're interested in economic sociology and work at organizations. Um, is, is qualitative work pretty common in those fields? I'm not super familiar with those um, fields of sociology. Yeah, it's pretty common. I mean, when you look at work in organizations, especially in, when you look at, um, for example, organizational ethnographies, which have been a mm-hmm. longstanding feature of work, um, of research in that area, um, that's, you know, one key method um, in economic sociology, also a lot about how people imbue um, their actions, especially around money, especially around finances with meaning. How do you mm-hmm. think of yourself in relation to money, for instance, um, which is something that comes out in the book a lot, you know, whose money matters, whose income matters and why um, to the household economy in a way. Uh, so I think qualitative methods have been have had a pretty strong foothold in these areas. And obviously, like in the study of um, gender, qualitative mm-hmm. methods have been pretty key in kind of, again, thinking about why, how we present ourselves as gendered selves. That's really coming from sort of observational and interview data. Yeah, absolutely. So Alia, how did you come to write Crunch Time? So what inspired you to write this book? Sure. So this is a, that's a great question. Um, this, the Crunch Time was originally my PhD dissertation, which, as you mentioned, I completed in 2016. The reason um, I did that was, uh, you know, I kind of came to this topic was, you know, in my first year at Penn, we were, I was taking a lot of classes, um, including in Sociology of the Family, where I read Catherine Newman's Falling from Grace. And I loved the book. I thought she captures, you know, the experiences of unemployment so poignantly. Um, And she focused, but she focused entirely on, in the chapters on unemployment, on unemployed managers who were men. Um, and in the afterward to her book, to a second edition of her book, she writes about how um, 
you know, she wishes she had included women. And then she kind of offers some, um, some sort of predictions for how if she had included women or if she included women then, at this time, the edition is coming out in the 90s, in the late 90s, that she thinks that women's experiences of unemployment would be very similar to men's. And this was a sort of gap that I saw in the research, that when you look at unemployment, um, it's really focused very much on men. Now, that makes sense when you think about, you know, Mira Komarovsky's work, uh, which was on the Great Depression, or you look at Newman's work and so on. But it made less sense to my mind in the, you know, in the 2010s, 2015s or whatever, when you do have, when the labor force has changed enough that a lot more women are in the labor force, including women with young children, right? Like um, something like three fourths of all mothers, for instance, are in the labor force at any given point and so on. Um, so to me, it felt very important to think about how do these experiences of how might these experiences of unemployment differ for men and women, especially since employment meant, means very different things for men and women, right? For men, it's often very crucial um, to their identities in the family as fathers. You know, you're employed. When you're employed, that's when you're a good father. When you're a breadwinner, that's when you're a good husband and a father. But for women, um, women's employment has always been sort of faced. Um, or framed as being in tension with their motherhood. That if you're really like, you know, um, a good mother, an intensive mother, then time outside of that mothering takes time away from, is time away from your kids. So I felt mm-hmm. it was very important. So I felt, I mean, what I really thought was that if employment has such different meanings for men and women, then so must unemployment. And that's something we need to understand in a context where women participate more in the labor force, but also unemployment is becoming more per- pervasive. Yeah, absolutely. And talking a little bit more about your methods. So tell tell us about the methods that you use to conduct this study. Because when I read this book, um, you went beyond just interviews. You you really sat down with these families, and I found that really interesting. So what was the experience like of conducting this research? Sure. So the way I did this was my way into this research was really through the larger world um, of unemployment. Now, what this means is, you know, I was collecting data for this after the Great Recession, when we were technically, when the U.S. was technically in recovery um, in around 2013, 2014. What that meant, though, was that the experience of the Great Recession had um, sort of spurred a proliferation of um, sort of neighborhood-led, pure, sorry, neighborhood-level, pure-led job searching groups where people who were unemployed usually kind of got together, um, you know, in a little cafe or like a Panera Bread to discuss how do you kind of interview well, what job openings are there, how do you curate a CV, and things like that. Um, there were also a lot of career coaches. There was a lot of outplacement um, services firms. There were a lot of nonprofit organizations, um, especially religious, often linked to churches that were offering again free sort of advice on how to job search effectively in a in a not great economy, basically. Um, for people who had lost their jobs. So this is this is the world that I started entering. I'd basically reach out to people who are running um, these kind of job searching, job search clubs and things like that. And I'd tell them, I'd say, you know, I'm a graduate student here and I'm interested in doing research on this, um, on the experiences of unemployment. I think this is an important topic. Can I come to your meeting that you're having on this, this date? Often, you know, online they'd have their calendar of events Um, which I would look at and I'd say, you know, can I come and give a small pitch about it? And actually, like, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Um, 
the kind of conveners of these meetings and stuff usually said, yes, I think this is really important. I think they'd be interested in your research. So why don't you come along on this date and you can give a two minute pitch when we, before we kind of um, do a little break in the meeting or whatever. So I give, I would give a two minute pitch um, and I would invite anyone to come up to me after the meeting and either ask me any questions or if they were interested, you know, we would exchange contact information and I would follow up with them. So, I mean, I would always try to recruit, I would say I'm looking for either someone who is unemployed or even someone, you know, whose spouse is unemployed. But I actually only got people who were unemployed responding to me. So what ended up happening was I'd interview the unemployed person. And then at the end of the interview, I'd ask them, you know, um, it would be so great to get, um, thanks for sharing your perspective. It'd be great for me to understand how your spouse feels about this as well. Um, And, you know, do you think um, they would be willing to talk with me? Um, what happened then was that some of the participants would say, sure, I can, I'm happy to tell my spouse. Um, and you know, if she's interested, I'll let you know, or if he's interested, I'll let you know. Um, and some would say, no, I don't, you know, the marriage is already really tense. So I don't want to bring this up with my spouse at this point, you can check back in with me later. Um, and so that's how the interview portion of it kind of went. Um, and you know, at, at some point I was going to so many of these clubs and stuff that I sort of became a familiar familiar phase mm-hmm. um, around these events. And uh, some people, often what happened was that some, after I'd give a little pitch, um, some of the unemployed people that I interviewed, they would actually kind of stand up and kind of corroborate, oh, you know, I, I did an interview with Alia and um, she's great and I would recommend that you do this because this is important research, which is what, you know, um, I guess that's how they felt. So that's how I did the in-depth interviews um, with the unemployed men and women and their spouses. Then after a while, you know, um, I really knew I wanted observational data on families because when you look, when I look at certainly um, studies of family life that have observational data, the kind of nuance that they're able to get with not just um, showing us patterns, for example, in the division of housework, but showing us like really kind of very deep patterns and deep motivations and also kind of um, being able to draw out when what you say may or may not align with what you do. So I knew I was very sure I wanted observational data. I was just kind of a bit concerned about how do I go about trying to get observational data from families at a moment that's pretty stressful for them, right? Um, would it? Would I risk sounding callous saying, hey, let me into your family for a few weeks so I can observe how you deal with this very stressful situation? I was worried about that. Um, but what I did was... Um, as I stayed in touch with the families, I reached out to some of them and I said, hey, you know, I'd often sort of warm them up um, at the end of the interview. I might say, oh, you know, the interviews are one part of my study, but another part is actually doing observational stuff. So and I wouldn't say much more than that, but I would just let them know that that's something I was doing. And then I might reach out later and say, um, you know, I'm, I have this observational thing and I wanted to see if this is something you might be at all interested um, I've attached like, you know, a one page sheet of what the observations would entail. And if this is something you think you can do, then I'd be happy to talk more about it. And the response rate was actually a lot better than I thought it would be. Um, people didn't dismiss me outright. Um, you know, they kind of entertained it. Some considered it for a while and then um, said, you know, this is not for us. Some considered it and said, you know, this is something we can do. Um, and then I would work out the timing with them about um, when to kind of come and visit with them. I do think that, you know, sort of being um, a relatively youngish female graduate student helped me. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think I came across as unthreatening. I don't know that if I was, um, you know, a man, even a young man, that that would necessarily be the case. So I'd be curious to see how someone else might go about this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go ahead and talk about three uh, of the key to key uh, concepts used in this book. Uh, the ideal job seeker, uh, and the ideal worker, and then the term morally unemployed. So first, what is, who is the ideal job seeker? What is the ideal job seeker norm? Yeah, so the ideal job seeker is really sort of like an ideal type um, encapsulating the kind of behaviors and activities and sort of even dispositions, I would say, that um, the unemployed participants as well as their spouses in the study and really um, the whole universe of kind of unemployment and job searching deem as the characteristics that they deem as necessary to get a job in a context of widespread economic uncertainty and, you know, rampant downsizing and layoffs and so on. And these characteristics are things like um, being devoted to job searching, really organizing your days around job searching. So the, this idea that I kind of kept hearing over and over again was searching for a job is a full-time job. And they really meant this. They really meant that you treat it as like, you know, a nine to five where you break for lunch, but your day is super organized um, where you don't do anything else during this time. That's what that means. Um, that you are very proactive in networking and kind of reaching out to people. These might be ex-colleagues. These might be people um, acquaintances. These might be personal networks um, in the, in the sort of, meetings that I attended with at these job search clubs and stuff, they talked a lot about um, updating all your networks, including family, friends, whoever you can think of with like a monthly newsletter, which you curate and you tell them what you've been up to a little bit personally, but a lot professionally so that when you reach out to them for help, you know, maybe later on um, when you're unemployed, that it's not coming as like a root shock, you know, because you've always made that effort to be in touch. So it was these very extensive, um, um, time intensive and also, you know, money intensive, um, kind of activities that, um, were enshrined in this norm. Now this norm really builds upon, like you said, the ideal worker norm, the ideal worker norm is the, the, this idea, um, that to kind of succeed in a, especially in a corporate environment in an, but in really any organization, you have to be extensively devoted to work. Um, you have to be available to work 24-7. You have to be available to kind of work on the weekends, to work late into the nights, to travel extensively for work. And basically, you don't have any other responsibilities, right? Like, you don't have any child care or any other caregiving obligations or any other kind of thing that you're doing outside of paid work, really. And um, Joan Williams, who kind of coined this, she talks about how um, that this kind of adhering to this ideal worker concept was um, is something that basically determines, you know, whether you get, um, whether you kind of progress up the career ladder as she conceptualized it um, and then earn like an ideal worker wage, which is, you know, something that's stable, secure and pretty well paying. Um, and she argues that it's usually men who are able to comply with this uh, sort of norm because they are less likely than women certainly to have caregiving responsibilities outside of paid work. Um, so that's that's the concept that I'm building off of. And what I'm saying is that in this context of economic uncertainty, um, where you don't you know don't long uh, you no longer really have this kind of upward, very linear career mobility that you know often you're moving from horizontal from job to job from company to company on a horizontal level really, um, and this idea of employer employee loyalties has sort of become obsolete. That it's. Um, what you really need is these is being able to be an ideal job seeker who's 
able to network, who's able to kind of keep an eye out always for jobs that may be available and so on in order to make sure that their career progresses. Yeah. And I, I wanted to go ahead and shift right into this term that I found super, super interesting is morally unemployed. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is, you know, um, being unemployed has generally been seen as a pretty stigmatized identity. You know, Goffman calls it as like, you know, um, a kind of character flaw, a stigma, like, you know, that that's um, that's how we kind of saw it. Uh, you know, that's sort of this idea of what's wrong with this person. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to kind of capture with this term morally unemployed is that in the current economic context where unemployment, including across social classes, has become more pervasive, unemployment itself is no longer stigmatized that it might have been um, in earlier decades where, you know, th- there were certainly for these kinds of college-educated professionals where jobs tended to be more stable, more secure, more linear, Right. So unemployment no longer has that kind of moral stigma. What does have the moral stigma is, are you unemployed and do you continue to be unemployed? You know, how long are you unemployed for? What, why are you not kind of able to get reemployment? Um, so that sort of duration of how long your unemployment goes on for, that's what um, signals a sort of moral flaw. So now uh, someone who's morally unemployed would be in the case of men in particular in the study, um, and those are the people I use this for, is that you're showing you're unemployed, yes, but because you're trying to adhere to the ideal job seeker norm by, um, fo- by being completely devoted to your job search, by organizing your days around job searching, that you can be a morally unemployed person, that you can stave off stigma by kind of, again, demonstrating um, you know, to your spouse, to other people around you, that you're trying very hard to find reemployment. Yeah, that makes sense, especially the part about, you know, having this context of unemployment being more pervasive than maybe it once was. Um, so you have three parts in this book, and I want to go through each of them a little bit. So the first part is about gender and space during unemployment. So how did unemployment change how men related to their space within their homes? Yeah, so it was strange. Um, for men, there was this kind of idea of almost being like trespassers in their own home that, you know, you're not supposed to be at home in the, um, during the work week, during working hours of like, especially nine to five, that that's something that has to be explained away. So it was sort of, um, it was sort of like, you know, what is this person doing at home during these hours when they should clearly be out to work? Um, so there was that, but uh, there was, that was one aspect of it. But the other aspect was that the way that, um, kind of couples dealt with this and especially to facilitate unemployed men's sort of job searching was they would often carve out a specific nook uh, or an office at times for men to job search from. And this was sort of, you know, a cordoned off area, which was seen as only the men's purview where they could spread out their papers, where they had their equipment, you know, often it was an upgraded computer system or, um, you know, books on, uh, books for professional reskilling, which a lot of men talked about doing, getting certificate specific certifications for their occupation and so on, um, so that they could so that they could really basically create an office within the home, which demarcated um, spatially that men were at home to job search, not that they were just at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that idea of like creating a home office for finding a job. That's really interesting. Yeah. too. So um, 
So what does it mean that the families in the study, they naturalize the presence of unemployed women in the house? So to talk a little bit about how space and unemployment um, differed by depending on who the gender of the person who was unemployed. Yeah. So for what happened with unemployed women was that their presence at home, um, even during work week, including, I mean, these were all women who, you know, had pretty... um, uh, who'd often had, you know, full-time, pretty high-flying careers and stuff, um, that this, their presence at home was not something that needed to be naturalized. That's, uh, that needed to be, sorry, explained away. That it was something that was so natural, it was almost like righting a wrong. That them not being at home had been like the, the anomalous situation, and now things were back to how they should be. So what that meant for unemployed women often was that it was, it was a lot with the home where they sort of um, claimed the home as their space, but it was also with like other feminized spaces, other things like, you know, women would talk about um, going to, for instance, PTAs and feeling very welcomed there by other mothers on like a Tuesday at 10 a.m. and not as sort of like, what are you doing on a weekday not at work? They talked about being welcomed into these feminized spaces, which men had a very um, different experience of. They felt very sort of judged for being, you know, at a park um, in the middle of the day, for instance, with their kids. Um, so these women talked about how the home and these sort of um, adjacent feminized spaces were very, were really uh, welcoming to them and made them feel like like the domestic was a very welcoming space, basically. Um, they talked about how, because they were at home, they were able to, especially they talked a lot about their kids, about how they were able to be the kinds of mothers that they felt they hadn't been before. Now, this is, of course, because um, these were, you know, as sort of, um, professional middle-class families. These were families that were primarily living in the suburbs, um, often at quite a large, uh, quite a significant commuting distance from their workplaces. Um, and they were also sort of subject to norms of intensive mothering. Um, intensive mothering, as you know, is this idea that um, mother's attention um, and emotion and time should really be spent on uh, rearing their kids um, along s- specific dimensions. Um, so they were juggling, these mothers, when they were employed, had been juggling with these sort of, um, I wouldn't say oppositional, but certainly not easy to reconcile um, experiences. So when they were unemployed, and especially in the initial months of unemployment, they talked about how they no longer felt as harangued, right? They no longer had the long commute and the extensive workplace demands. They felt they could kind of sink in to the... Um, to the demands of the domestic and even enjoy them. They talked about enjoying being able to kind of go to kids, their kids' athletic events um, and not having to worry about like, oh, I have to get back and um, fin- meet this deadline or reply to this email or whatever, kind of just being more relaxed about that. They talked about how um, dropping their kids off um, to school or to extra or picking them up for extracurricular activities, this just made them feel a lot more involved as mothers, um, than they felt they had been able to be earlier. So the space of the home was a sort of very welcoming space for most of the unemployed women, especially in the initial months of unemployment. Did any of the the women sort of push back or try to try to avoid getting into this like housewife mode that you talk about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I have one example that I mentioned, especially, and this is, um, um, one of them was a, a woman I called Gina Forrester. Obviously, as you know, all names that I used were pseudonyms. Um, and she talked a lot about how 
she kind of resisted the ideal job seeker norm too. She said, you know, this is, it's, I don't have to be frantically finding work. I can take time. I can be methodical about it. And she also resisted the housewife. She said, you know, no, just because I'm at home doesn't mean I'm, I'm not a housewife who's going to just kind of take up all these chores. So she really kind of fought back against that. Um, um, especially when her husband, she, you know, she describes how her husband would kind of come from work, uh, come back from work or whatever, and not recognize that when she was at the computer, she was also doing um, work that was important for her, for her job search or for her other activities. And he would kind of say, oh, well, you know, can you kind of go do X chore or Y chore or whatever? And she would sort of push back and say, well, no, as you can see, I'm in the middle of something. So she was someone who talked explicitly about kind of very much resisting a shift whereby she became responsible for most of the housework because she was spending more time at home. Other women, um, for instance, talked about feeling resentful that um, things changed once they lost their job. So I have one example, Grace Bloom, who talks about, and Grace Bloom was someone for whom chores became very important. She talked about um, childcare as something that was something she wanted to be able to do a lot more, being more involved in her daughters who were in elementary school in their lives and even she talked about she said you know um when I was employed I was still doing like 75 percent of the housework or whatever um but now that I'm unemployed it's like I do everything and it's just expected that I'll do everything and she would push back she would tell her husband that you know you're still a part of this family and part of what being part of this family means is that you do participate in chores that you do take care of our girls that you do kind of you know help with the washing up after dinner and stuff so she would protest at times but she was less successful in kind of um in kind of resisting it basically like you know she would have these spurts of resistance and then it would fall back into where she was doing everything um and gina forrester was just much more kind of bounded um in sort of saying, you know, I'm not a housewife, I'm going to go back into full-time work at some point, and you need to kind of be ready for that. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see the tension that women may face um, in that situation. And talking a little bit more about, like going back to talk about men who are unemployed, um, how did their spouses see men's like space and taking up space in the home were they annoyed were they like did did men seem like out of place in the home yeah for the most part spouses really also thought um so like the wives of unemployed men also really thought that men needed that space just in order to be able to focus on job searching which they encouraged extensively um so it's you know men were focused on job searching but their wives were also really encouraging this um through various means in terms of the space of the home, um, you know, the space of the home, the demarcation of especially like a, a home office or whatever served, I think, a very important function for some couples. And I have an example of the Barons, where, you know, Todd Barron, who's been unemployed and he was like the main earner in their family, he talks about how kind of closing the door to his home office meant that his wife or others couldn't see what he was doing. Right. And the reason he says this is that sometimes when you're job searching, you might not be you might not actually be job searching. You might just be surfing the internet. Um, yeah. you, know, there's, um, you might be reading the news or whatever. And he talks about how if his, when his wife came home and if she kind of had constant access to what he was doing, it might also trouble her. That you know, she might think, why aren't you every second of the day job searching and stuff like, why are you reading the news or why are you doing this or whatever? So he talked about how the space um, and the kind of being able to conceal what he was doing through this home office really served to kind of protect her 
and him and to maybe help their relationship a little bit. And his wife, Kimmy, who I also spoke with, she kind of said the same thing. She said, you know, I, that office is so important for us because I'm so concerned about how he's job searching. She was concerned about that he might not be complying in the way she wanted him to comply with the ideal job seeker norm. So she was like, you know, I don't need to see everything that he's doing. And if he was out in the open, that would be there for me to see, you know, um, so it's yeah. that purpose as well. Yeah, and that's a good segue to the second part of your book, which is about gendered time and job searching. So how did couples vary in how they defined men's unemployment? You talk about this a little bit, but also did how did unemployment affect couples' marriages? Yeah, so the way the um, unemployed families defined couples' unemployment, like I have, I draw two broad patterns, and obviously these have variations that I'm happy to talk about later if you need to. So with unemployed men, what happened was that no matter how much of the household income unemployed men had brought in, for instance, whether they'd been the primary earners, whether they'd been sort of bringing in as much as their employed spouse, or whether they'd earned significantly lesser employed spouse, their um, lo- the loss of income from their jobs was seen as this um, was seen as a pretty grave problem that needed to be urgently addressed. They talked; these families talked about experiencing relative deprivation. Now that means they weren't worried about being destitute. You know, as I mentioned, this is a pretty affluent, pretty privileged sample. So they weren't necessarily worried about being destitute. M- many of them were not even worried about losing. You know, uh, most of them were not worried about losing their house or any dramatic what we would consider dramatic shifts in lifestyle. They did talk, though, about not being able to afford the kind of um, trappings of their social class that made their lives their life. So these might be things like international and domestic vacations. These might be things like um, uh, very expensive extracurricular activities. One example that comes to mind is ballet, you know, kind of paying for a daughter's ballet lessons um, for years and years and so on. So they did talk about that um, those kinds of things as being things that they have to reconsider. Summer camps, very expensive summer camps, overnight camps that were in the thousands of dollars. They, talk, they talked about how um, being able to pay for stuff like that uh, was, was becoming difficult. And that's why men had to get reemployed because they were experiencing relative deprivation. Mm-hmm. So they really kind of, families of unemployed men, really kind of highlighted how men's income was crucial to the family to how their household economy functioned. Um, Families of unemployed women, by and large, didn't do this. Um, Even when women had been the primary earners or had brought in half of the household income, and um, as I mentioned in the book, I actually oversampled for women um, who who either brought in as much or more than their husbands compared to when we look at national national trends. Um, What they would talk about, they would downplay the importance of women's income. They would sort of say oh, well, you know, we can get by without that. They would talk about how uh, women being at home saved them some money. For instance, they'd talk about childcare, that because the woman was at home, um, they, they don't no longer had um, summer camp or aftercare expenses and things like that and how that saved them some money. Um, and they would really kind of emphasize how the husband's income um, was really sufficient for their lifestyle, which they often described as being frugal, Um, as being on a one income, you know, kind of designed to be on a one or one and a half income family. So they felt a pinch, but but not that much. Um, So this was like a sort of framing that was going on that didn't necessarily match the prior economic realities of these families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you also talk about 
these two concepts, um, you know, in your book, like the warhorse anchoring approach and the meeting of the minds approach. Can you talk a little bit about both of those and how couples navigate job seeking? Yeah. So the warhorse anchoring approach and the example that I give was the Goldbergs. That's really about like a couple that's um, been married for like a pretty long time um, and has gone through some difficult experiences together. Now, these difficult experiences for the Goldbergs was um, basically deciding they had a very kind of um, acute disagreements about parenting, especially for their um, son over their son, um, which had kind of brought them to heads about the year before um, uh, Kevin's uh, sort of job loss and unemployment. Um, and it, it had become so kind of problematic for them that they'd um, considered divorce and had eventually decided against that. So they were encountering this job loss and unemployment, having established, they were also seeing a counselor, having established a set of rules um, for their marriage about how they would approach each other. So they had basically a lot of skills that they were coming into just given the long duration of their marriage. So when Kevin lost his job loss, uh, sorry, lost his job, they, um, they entered the kind of discussions around it, the discussions they had was by having very specific, um, in a way, feeling rules that Kevin's wife, Tamara, really um, instigated. Um, and these feeling rules were basically, how do you treat Kevin? How do you behave with Kevin? How do you interact with Kevin? during this time, well, how do you frame unemployment for Kevin? And she decided that um, along with Kevin, but it was really her taking the lead um, in kind of establishing these feeling rules was that Kevin's un- unemployment had to be treated as a traumatic situation. Um, so she had to kind of treat him as a, as he was coming from a place of trauma, that she had to give him space uh, to deal with the trauma of job loss and also to job search, that she had to, for instance, um, Suspend the economy of gratitude. You know, this is a term by Arlie Hochschild, who really uh, talks about, and what suspending this meant was that during this time of trauma for Kevin, um, she would not expect him to necessarily acknowledge things that she was doing for him, nor expect reciprocity during this time. Now, mm-hmm. meeting of the minds differed, um, and that was like about that was about the Jansons who had a. I would, I mean, I would say they had a younger marriage, so they'd gone through a lot of changes in their marriage. But these changes were, in some ways, external to them. These changes were sort of like loss of parents and things like that, not something as sort of dramatic as a divorce. Um, and so they they had basically an undefined um, set of feeling rules. They didn't really have feeling rules around how Robert's job search should be seen, how his unemployment should be seen, um, and what that meant was that there was more interactional kind of tension when they talked about Robert's job search, you know, during, during dinner table conversations um, where Kevin was very open with Tamara and they discussed it sort of like, like a team who was approaching this job search together. Robert was very clear. Robert was like, my spouse is not my sounding board. I can't like lay this all on them. So he was coming from a good place. But what that also meant was that he was not sharing as much as his wife, Laura wanted him to share with her about his job search. She wanted to be super involved and he was sort of resisting that. So th- those are the kind of broad things, these two um, disparate ways of interacting around unemployed men's job search got at. Sure. So how can women be the ideal job seeker? Um, you know, I think the findings from my book suggest that they can't really be, uh, partly yeah. because they're not recognized as such, right? Like I had this example right. of um, Carolyn Anderson, who is, 
um, you know, her income, she earned half the household income. Her husband even acknowledges her income as being very important to their family, to their lifestyle, and so on. At the same time, Cor- uh, Carolyn was one of the fewer women in the study who was sort of laser focused on getting reemployment. Mm-hmm. She talked about the, really organizing her days around networking, around job searching. She talked about how, because she was organizing her days around this very proactively, it meant that she wasn't focused, for instance, on getting dinner ready for her sons on other things like that. She said, you know, I would just get so engrossed in what I was doing in terms of job searching that other things fell by the wayside. Now this is, she's doing exactly actually what a lot of the unemployed men described, except they got support for that, right? They got support from their wives for like, this is what you should be doing. This is a good thing. Um, With Carolyn, that was not the case. Her husband was really annoyed. Her husband, Ben, was really irritated that she is, um, so focused on job searching, he talked. Um, he talked about how she behaved as though she had a gun to her head, um, you know, um, and that no one was forcing her to job search. And couldn't she just relax a little bit? So her behavior in trying to be an ideal job seeker um, was not rewarded. It was seen as anomalous. It was seen as why aren't you taking the space and this time to, for instance, make more home cooked meals? Why are we ordering in from um, restaurants? Why are we doing so much takeout? Why aren't you doing more healthy meals for our kids, for instance, or for our family or whatever? So it was just simply not supported in the way that unemployed men's job searching efforts were. I found the contrast between men's job searching and women's job searching really intriguing. And I thought that, you know, Carolyn and Ben's marriage really, really showed that. So going towards the third part of your book, we talk about gendered time and housework. Mm-hmm. So how did, and you talk about this a little bit again. Um, so how did the division of housework change at all where, when men were unemployed and women did paid work? So just the man was unemployed. Yeah, sure. So the, what happened there was the dominant thing was that there was not a significant shift. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, these unemployed men would often they would, you know, maybe do more pickups, more drop-offs, but really the time, would, and by, I mean, I think this is like three-fourths of the of the unemployed men. Um, there was no dominant shift in that. It was still sort of like, I'll help out a little bit more around the house and I'll help out, you know, that language, that this is not my responsibility. This is clearly on the wife who is still, by the way, fully employed, right? Um, or considerably, or certainly more employed than the unemployed, per, uh, unemployed man. Um, so there was that. Um, so they might do a little bit more of these pickups and drop-offs, but there was no significant shift and there was no shift in terms of taking ownership of chores that, you know, because I'm home, I can be the one handling the family calendar. I can be the one doing, um, making sure that I know, um, when kids need to be picked up and dropped off. It was sort of like, I'll follow my wife's lead and what she tells me to do. I'll do that as, and when I can. That was a sort of majority of what I saw. Now, wives of these men, they didn't. They often explicitly didn't express um, annoyance with this because, partly because they thought, well, you know, he does need to be um, focusing on job searching. But they would feel irritated. They would say, why can't he do a little bit more? Like he's at home. Why can't he just throw in the laundry or defrost the meal that I cooked? You know, <laughs> it was like that level of sort of. Um, protection of time that I saw over and over again. Um, what, but there was a smaller minority of men in the study, and that was about a fourth of the men who did take on more, um, significantly more chores uh, while unemployed. 
often these were families that had already sort of been relatively gender egalitarian even before. Um, And these men just kind of switched to doing more and sort of switched to being like, well, I am home, so I should do more. They really saw their contribution um, to their families as not just being paid work, but also unpaid work. But even in these more egalitarian families, as I as I kind of argue in the book, that didn't mean they were doing more than their employed wives. They were just doing more than other unemployed men in the study. Um, And often they're doing more, um, for instance, you know, taking over all the let's say, all the cooking or all the childcare or whatever um, reverted back to as it had been uh, once they got new jobs again, which is something that I show in the case of the of the Neils in, in the chapter on them. Um, so, I mean, in terms of men's time was very much protected for job searching, even in the more egalitarian cases. And even when unemplo- uh, unemployment shifted, um, sort of the division of paid and unpaid work in men's families towards being more egalitarian, it didn't seem to me to normally, to kind of be long-lived. Certainly not in what I what I kind of observed and saw in the follow-up interviews. Sure. So did the type of chores that men did, did they just take on whatever chore was available in the house or were there specific types of chores that men were more likely to take on? Men were often, so they did, take on some sort of what we'd call core tasks, core tasks are tasks that are, you know, um, uh, tasks that can be put off, that are repetitive, that are routine, and that are mm-hmm. often time consuming. So these are things like, you know, if you have a little kid um, and his diaper needs to be changed, it's not something you can t- put off. That needs to be right. sort of done right away, as opposed to if you have um, like um, trash that needs to be taken out or lawn that needs to be mo- mowed. Those are time sensitive, but just not to the same extent. And they're also not done as frequently. So men were typically, um, overall, men do more peripheral tasks. And in this study, like, again, like I said, you know, the outside, that kind of outside chores. Um, And so men continue to do more of that. Unemployed men continue to do more of outside chores. What they would often do is that, you know, if they had home projects, like, for instance, um, redoing the deck or renovating a bathroom or whatever it might be, they would take on those home projects, which were, um, as it is masculinized, that's something they would have done that would have fallen on the men anyway. They just did that now. So it didn't necessarily help um, their employed wives out very much because they still remained more responsible or as responsible for, you know, things like cooking, cleaning, and so on. Um, So that was one pattern I saw. But I will say, I mean, unemployed men did did step up um, when it came to kind of doing, you know, maybe more cooking than they had before or certainly a little bit more of the pickups and drop-offs. That's something I observed. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Um, And then for unemployed women, what was the typical pattern here? You mentioned that women, they sort of fell into this role of domesticity. um, But were there any families that diverged from this more dominant model? Yeah, so like you said, um, definitely the dominant model was that women fell into Uh, domesticity. And I think that really was a way also of staving off any stigma of unemployment, you know, as opposed to being like an unemployed person, you could be a stay at home mom. That's an identity that these women had sort of had access to. Um, And often for these unemployed women, um, kind of doing more housework, and these were cases of women who were really kind of taking over um, all of the housework. For some of them, this became a way of contributing to the household at a time when they sort of felt guilty about not bringing in um, income, basically. Um, You know, that these were dual earner families and they felt like, well, I'm not pulling my 
kind of pulling my weight with providing economically. So the least I can do is kind of take over all the housework. Now, some women resisted this, like I said already, and they felt resentful that um, because their husbands also expected that they would take over all of the housework. And so they, they kind of resented that, that why should I take over all the housework when I'm also trying to do, jo- uh, do my job search and things like that? That why isn't there any space to recognize that? Um, there were some divergences from this. Um, one example was um, of how sort of mental health concerns, um, and this was in the case of the D'Angelo's, of how mental health concerns really prevented um, Christina, in this case, Christina D'Angelo, um, from kind of doing too much housework. She talked about how because she was feeling so kind of worthless, so depressed. I mean, her case was complicated. It was sort of unemployment mixed with a long history of um, trying to conceive a child, then trying to adopt a child, and um, how long that took. And that coincided with her unemployment, feeling worthless on the personal front and also the professional front, that she was like, no, I just can't, I just couldn't do that. Um, I just couldn't do housework. I mean, I knew it had to be done, but I just couldn't do it or whatever. Um, And in her case, like, you know, her husband didn't get annoyed at her. He sort of recognized it. But that was a thing they had to figure out. Like, you know, if I recognize that you, your sort of mental health issues um, prevent you from being doing housework while I'm kind of fully employed, then how do we manage this? So that was one of the deviations um, that I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So going to the conclusion of your book, I just want to ask a couple of like overarching questions um, from your perspective as a researcher. So what surprised you most about your findings? I mean, I think when I entered this project, I really kind of entered with um, this idea that, I mean, when you look at, for instance, um, Catherine Newman's um, more optimistic outlook on how she predicted unemployed men and unemployed women's experiences would be similar. And she said that that, that would be because um, women's em- uh, employment has become, become central to their identities. And that's actually supported by a lot of research, you know, like, especially for women in this, um, in this kind of social class who are quite highly educated and relatively high paying jobs and stuff that they expect to have continuous careers. And they're actually the most likely to have kind of continuous employment histories. So I thought for them, um, given this social class background, I sort of expected, I didn't expect to see these stark differences, basically. I really thought their unemployment, especially when it meant such a huge loss of income to the household, would be sort of more recognized and and somewhat more supported than it, than I really found evidence of. So th- that to me was pretty surprising. Um, I thought the, uh, to me, one of the findings that I find really interesting in this, in my, in my book, um, is around the space and how the space of the home really took on different meanings for unemployed men and for unemployed women. Yeah, that was one of my favorite um, parts of the book as well. I just didn't think about home and space and how, how different people that are supposed to be home and not supposed to be home, how they can take up that space. Uh, for the layperson or for the non-sociologist, so what is the main point that you'd like the listeners of the podcast or your readers to understand? I guess I would say the biggest kind of takeaway from this book which corroborates a lot of other research is that gender norms are still extremely traditional gender norms are extremely powerful, extremely influential in shaping how families organize themselves, even at a moment such as unemployment that is actually pretty ripe for 
um, disrupting these tra traditional gendered understandings. I mean, there's, you know, these families are behaving in many ways in relatively economically irrational ways by framing, um, for instance, when women had earned so much more that when the unemployed women had earned so much more than their husband, downplaying their income and that kind of stuff. So I would say that um, basically a, a one takeaway would be like the power of um, these ideas and sets of values around um, who should be doing paid work and who should be doing unpaid work are very powerful. Mm -hmm. So where should research on gender, family, and unemployment go from here? I mean, I think there are so many avenues and I think so many researchers are doing some really interesting things. So for instance, um, one of the things that, you know, this is a book that's very much vested in the heterosexual um, marriage, which is also like the locus of like a lot of gender inequality um, in the U.S. context, right? But one of the things I kept wondering about is that, you know, as sort of um, opting out of marriage in a way, as sort of... Um, or delaying marriage and so on, as that as these trends increase, what does men what do men's and women's unemployment experiences look like there? You know, how do you kind of um, how does sort of does that mean, for instance, are women who are single or unmarried um, or without children another increasing trend? Um, does that mean that do they have support to job search? Who does that support come from? Or what does that mean economically in terms of social support? Uh, ditto for men. You know, if you're not like sort of, uh, because a lot of, you know, the find, these findings are really bound up with these um, marital and parental roles of being a father and a husband, of being a mother um, and a wife. That when these roles are sort of absent, what are these unemployment experiences like? Just given demographic trends. So I think that's something to explore in the future. I think um, given how, I mean, right now we're in, you know, the middle of a, a pandemic and, a sort of economic downturn that's really affecting women um, and people of color disproportionately, right? This is like the first time that we are seeing an economic downturn where women are actually more impacted, uh, more adversely impacted than men in, who have typically lost jobs in previous downturns. Certainly, you know, the Great Recession had been called a man session popularly because um, industries and sectors that men were in were so disproportionately affected, which is not the case right now. So I'm super curious to see... Um, how this plays out, how sort of women's greater unemployment um, plays out and what it, what, will, what it will mean for how families organize their homes. Um, you know, findings from my study would indicate that women might just kind of end up being home for the longer term um, as families wrestle with what women's employment really means. I hope that's not the case, but that's certainly what these findings would suggest. So I think... Um, Right now, especially with the pandemic, there's that to focus on. The other thing that I find interesting is that, you know, with a lot of um, job searching stuff, what's happening now is that you're often submitting applications through online portals that are um, that are also um, sort of culled by, you know, by keywords and things like that. So I know there's emerging research showing um, how if your CV or your cover letter doesn't use certain words, which by the way, men are more likely to use about, you know, being leaders and things like that, that your CV and your cover letter might, may not even make it to the next level of the kind of um, interview or recruitment process. So I think those kinds of things about how technology is meeting job searching, I think those are very important. Yeah, absolutely. I did hear about the, the technology and their, the use of like artificial intelligence to sort resumes and CVs. 
interesting avenues of research. But my final question for you is what are you working on now or what is your next project like? Sure. So I have a couple of projects that are going on right now. One is um, one is a collaborative collaborative project with um, some scholars at the Clayman and uh, sorry the VMware Women's um, Leadership Lab at Stanford University, which is looking basically at um, several types of professionals um, and how this idea of passion for work features into how they think of themselves and how they um, fashion their career trajectories. Um, and who is seen as being more passionate at work and what kind of rewards that nets you in terms of career progression. So again, very focused on gender and how, and emotions, um, but a little bit removed from the family part. That's one project. Another project that I'm working on is basically how do, um, it's a, it's looking at work life again, work family stuff, which is a lot of what this unemployment project got at. Um, and examining how when you work in a distribute, globally distributed team, so these are um, teams that, you know, you might have the headquarters in the U.S., you might have a regional office in a place like Singapore, you might have other offices in like India and the U.K. and things like that. Um, how when you're working in distributed teams and when you when you are, how does your geographical location shape um shape your work-life balance? So one example I can give you, I've been doing interviews for this in Singapore with these people in globally distributed teams, again, professionals, um, primarily in the tech, um, financial sectors, and so on, um, about how when they are working with uh, collaborators, with colleagues um, in the US, and they have these conference calls that are often scheduled for 11pm at night, or midnight, or 1am, or 2am, how do you kind of, and these happen regularly, um, Mm -hmm. how do you kind of bound your time? um, And how do you maintain a sense of, um, work-life balance, you know, I use that word hesitantly, I use that phrase hesitantly, but how do you maintain a sense of that? So for this project, um, I collected data in Singapore, and the idea before the pandemic hit was to collect data with their counterparts in the U.S. and in the U.K. Mm -hmm. in particular as well, Um, you know, to kind of capture three different regions. Now, I don't know, um, I've done the data collection in Singapore, I don't know to what extent or when I'll be able to do the data collection in other places. Um, Uh, I think that's happening to a lot of people with the pandemic Im- impacting their research agenda. The final project that I um, am hoping to start, um, and as you know, I'm um, moving to the London School of Economics in August um, as an assistant professor there. So the final project that I'm uh, hoping to start there is a larger study on unemployment, um, you know, given the kind of um, devastating effect of COVID-19. And this would focus more on Um, the world of, you know, um, sort of human resource professionals, especially those tasked with downsizing and with um, making these decisions about layoffs, Um, Mm -hmm. again, focusing on emotions and stuff there. Um, Also, um, career coaches and these, you know, as I mentioned, I got into this project by way of these career coaches, this neighborhood-led, neighborhood peer-led networking groups and so on, but I didn't really study them. That was an avenue for me. I didn't study them. So kind of going back and studying these groups a little bit more, especially right now when I would imagine that these groups are particularly active, when career coaches, when outplacement services are especially active. Um, So kind of doing that. And finally, um, the third group of people that I would want to kind of study would be people who've lost their jobs. But this time I would kind of focus on, again, I would focus on, I I will focus on professionals, but I won't bound them by marital status or parental status. So it'll be a wider range of um, 
you know, professionals who've lost their jobs to be able to compare, um, you know, how marital parental status um, do impact all of this. Yeah, those sound like all very interesting projects and I'm excited to read about them once you publish your findings. But where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book? Sure. So I am on Twitter. Um, My handle is at Alia, A-L-I-Y-A-H-R-A-O. So you can find me there. That's a great place. Um, And I tweet about my work. I tweet about about other sociology stuff. Um, And you can also find me. I have a website. So I have, you know, on the website, I have um, a coupon for the book. If you buy it from UC Press's website where you get 30% off. Um, And the website is just... um, I think if you Google Alia Hamid Rao, you'll find it. It's aliahamidrao.com. Great. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Alia Hamid Rao, author of Crunch Time, How Married Couples Confront Unemployment, published in 2020 by University of California Press. I want to thank you again for being on the show today, Alia. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. All right. Take care. You too.